host Omar, and welcome to the Curiosity Project. In today's episode on Conversations With, I'll be talking to Dr. Michelle from Orbis. We will be discussing who Orbis are, what they do, and some interesting projects Dr. Michelle has worked on with Orbis. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Michelle. How are you doing? Hi. Yeah, it's great to be with you today. No, the pleasure's mine. I, I really appreciate you kind of taking some time and and, uh, and and doing this with me. It's really, really lovely, even though it's the first time we're talking. Um, I feel as though that I've been uh, I've, I've been learning so much about Orbis that it's uh, it's one of many meetings. Fantastic. It's great to be able to tell you a bit more about Orbis today. Fantastic. Well, I've 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 been extremely interested um, in uh, and and well, pardon the pun, curious uh, about uh, about eye care in general. Uh, whether it's um, how an individual can invest more in their in their frames, or whether it's um, the treatments that are that 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 are there with regards to um, diseases of the eye. So I've been I've been very very interested, and I'm very excited to be able to have this opportunity to have a chat with you. So, for those who who don't know who you are, why don't you uh, tell my audience who you are, what you do, and who Orbis are? Okay, yeah. Um, so I am a consultant anaesthetist, and I'm working in Guernsey. Um, I work for the medical specialist group there, um, and I've been back in Guernsey in the Channel Islands for about two years now. Um, but before that, I did my training uh, in anaesthetics uh, and in medicine um, over in the UK. Um, and I've been volunteering now uh, with Orbis since uh, 2016. Um, and I first heard about Orbis when I was working um, in London as an anaesthetic registrar at Moorfields Eye Hospital. Um, and that was how I first heard about the charity um, and heard a bit more about what they do and um, felt that it was um, something I really wanted to be involved in. And I became a volunteer anaesthetist with them. Extraordinary. And can I kind of ask, maybe rewinding the clock a little bit, um, what, what got you interested in eye care in general? Or why did you decide to pursue that as a career? Um, so when you think um, about uh, how a simple operation or a treatment that you can provide with uh, somebody with a, a significant visual problem, um, can be really life-changing for that person. Um, so take, for example, um, a patient with a cataract. They can have really uh, significant visual loss. Um, we can have such a simple operation that uh, in the space of 30 minutes uh, can be life-changing for them. So they can go in uh, with a severe visual impairment and they can come out with near normal vision. And, and that has such an impact on their life in such a short period of time. Um, and that's um, something that, you know, I feel is really worthy of my time and I really want to contribute towards. That's, 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 it's very, very interesting because I think people kind of take their sight for granted quite often. Um, it's very much a thing where people believe that, oh, my eyes are fine now, uh, that will kind of stay as it is, you know, if I need any help, then maybe I could just get a pair of glasses. And I think particularly in the West, we've become acclimatized to this uh, ease of access to eye treatments and eye care. So you've obviously had a fairly uh, fascinating career, I mean, working at one of the 
one of the most well-known eye institutes, Moorfields, uh, which is, you know, I'm sure most of my audience, particularly those who live in the UK, are very familiar with Moorfields Eye Hospital. Um, what was it that interested you about Orbis um, uh, and how did you hear about them? Uh, yeah, so I've always had uh, an interest in working in low and middle income countries. Um, and I think that's been, you know, even from when I was at medical school, I um, did my first sort of placement in a low and middle income country working in Cape Town in one of the A&Es there. And that gave me a real sort of insight into how fortunate we are with our medical training programs in the UK. And I got such a comprehensive training when I was learning um, and the access for that we somewhat take for granted. Um, and I think that's uh, where my interest in, in working in such countries came from. Um, and I've gone on to um, work, for example, for six months in uh, Lusaka in Zambia uh, later in my career. And so when I was introduced to Orbis, um, I felt that this was something that I could take forward throughout my career as a, um, a sort of permanent commitment to do some work with them every year um, for it to be something really um, sustainable and that I could continue with. Um, and that was that was really how I came to work with them. Extraordinary. And I, I, I remember the moment when I when I found about when I found out about how much of a problem um, uh, avoidable or treatable um, eye diseases are um, when when you hear that particularly in the west when you when you hear that somebody is suffering from cataracts it kind of reminds me of almost you know someone's got like a tooth cavity or something like that it's 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 not something that's really too much of a concern uh, i remember a bit of a a personal story my my grandmother um had very early uh, set uh, she, she she caught her cataracts fairly early um, and, you know, it was a fairly simple procedure uh, that she got um, a few weeks later and she was absolutely fine. She um, uh, took a bit of recovery for a few weeks and that was really about it. Uh, we didn't really think too much else about that. But then when I kind of started learning about exactly how many people in the world are suffering from diseases like this. Um, uh, and when I found out about how many of those cases could be treated, um I, th I thought that was absolutely extraordinary. What was that like for you when you found out about? Um, uh, uh, is, is this is, is this information that's wide uh, widely known in the ophthalmology community, or is or is or is this something that people are still learning about? I, I think um, you know we do obviously have an awareness of it. I mean, there's 1.1 billion people um, living globally with vision loss, and 90% of this is avoidable. And if you think about the top 90. causes of 90 percent yeah and primarily um that's lack of access to basic eye care um the the top cause um of visual loss are, are refractive error so a need for glasses um and the the second um cause is cataract so as you said again easily treatable my goodness my goodness i think i think when when, when you think about 1.1 billion because i mean Maybe you could help me out here. I, 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 I remember uh, reading a report that I think was written in 2017. I can't tell you exactly what the report was. And they mentioned um, a, a figure closer to around 250 million. Um, so it, it, 
would it be would it be the wrong assumption to say that the problem is getting worse or is it just because the population is growing so fast that it's a bit difficult to to keep up with what why has this figure kind of blown up so much yeah so i mean the the problem is is definitely um worsening i think in in 2017 um uh, experts were expecting um visual impairment to triple uh, by 2050 um and it's really one of the issues is um, that the number of patients that need eye care uh, is just outpacing the number of trained eye care professionals um, to treat these patients. Um, so we really need uh, more training and mentoring of these teams in, in low and middle income countries about to deliver this care. My goodness. And you said that you had some experience in Zambia. Uh, so when when we're talking about let let's call it the um, uh, the 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 eye specialist to patient ratio, um, I, I I think something uh, in in the UK is something like um, for every one hundred people there's one eye expert or something like that or or an optometrist or something like that. Uh, what what's the situation like in Zambia? What what was that like when you when you kind of uh, I'm guessing that you went via the flying eye hospital, which we can, which we can talk about um, in a bit. But what was it like when you touched ground in Zambia? Yeah, so I mean, I can't tell you exact figures um, for ophthalmologists to patients. Uh, I can tell you when I went to work in Zambia um, for a country of 15 million people at that time, um, back in 2017, they only had 30 trained <laughs> anaesthetic doctors. Um, so that, you know, oh that will give you an indication. Um, so it's really challenging. They, they've got large numbers of patients, um, often with quite advanced disease. Um, and, and really, um, you know, it's difficult to provide the care for those patients. Goodness gracious. And what, what, why is it, is it, is it purely access to resources why some of these countries like Zambia um, have such a I mean, I, I, I found no other reaction to just burst out in laughter when you said for 15 million people, there's 30 ophthalmologists. I just I, 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 it's almost incomprehensible in my mind. I mean, in, in the UK, we're so we're, we're so acclimatized now to going to any high street uh, and being able to find a free eye, uh, a free eye test or, you know, uh, having having your eye care um, covered under the NHS or whatever it might be. Uh, but to have such a extraordinary ratio where I'm guessing people are having to travel for, for, for miles and miles, particularly, that's almost impossible if you're suffering from an advanced illness. Um, you know, is it, is it because of is it is it because of priority problems in these countries or is it uh, access to resources or is it, um, you know, geopolitical problems? What 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 is typically the, the issue that Orbis see when they when they decide to. Um, uh, get involved in a particular country? I, I mean, I think the problems differ depending on, on the country that we're working with, but um, some of it is about equipment and resources, about, um, you know, rural communities um, and the provision of care being primarily in the urban areas. Some of it is about training programs for doctors and nurses that are not sort of advanced in their development. Um, so all these things, you know, it, it really depends on the circumstances in the country that we're working with. 
And what, what was the situation specific to Zambia? Um, I think in Zambia, um, a lot of the care is provided in the cities. So um, I was working in Lusaka um, and, you know, there's a lot of outreach to rural communities, but um, they don't necessarily have the same awareness in the rural communities of um, what care is available to them. And as you say, it's long distances to travel. Um, some is simply a, due to issues with equipment and, as I say, um, lack of numbers of trained eye care professionals. Um, so all of these things, really. I see. And so, so when 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 Orbis see a situation like that, uh, what what is their what is their port of call? How do they then decide? You know what? We need to we need to intervene. We need to start helping. We need to start providing training and and stuff like that. What what's 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 the um. What's the new normal logistics of how Orbis would operate? And you, you can talk specifically about Zambia, how that kind of worked and what you guys did over there. Um, yeah, so um, normally um, Orbis works in several different ways to provide uh, training and mentoring to our eye care team. So they form um, local partnerships um, with um, local hospitals in the area. So these are long-term partnerships that will continue um, over a period of time. Um, they do projects with their Flying Eye Hospital. Um, and then they also have uh, a telemedicine platform that they work with called CyberSight as well. Okay. So thinking, what do, what do, you do you want to hear? What do you mean by telemedicine uh, platform? What, 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 what does that mean? Um, yeah, so um, it's a website over which we can provide a variety of different training options um, for people remotely. Mm. Um, so we can provide training for nurses, anaesthetists, um, ophthalmologists uh, and biomedical technicians uh, in a remote fashion. Um, so this can be via uh, live webinars, lectures, um, sets of e-learning modules, for example. Wow, extraordinary. And has this been something that's fairly recent? or I mean, it sounds like something that may have been encouraged via the pandemic that we've just been suffering from. Would I, would I be correct in assuming that? Um, so Orbis has actually had CyberSight really since the very start of the internet, but it's something that's obviously um, since the pandemic has become more and more important. Um, so we think about the numbers of um, trainees that were registered on this website actually doubled between 2019 and 2020. Um, so we can wow. see that yeah, people have been really um, seeking to continue their training and their learning. Um, and the way they've been able to do that um, is via telemedicine and um, online learning. So it's become more and more important. Extraordinary. Now, when I when, when I did the initial episode with my co-host, um, I mentioned the Flying Eye Hospital, uh, which is it's a great thing, right? But it's also fabulous when it comes to marketing as well. I mean, just 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 saying it, it immediately engages um, an individual's mind's eye. I mean, this flying eye hospital, it sounds like something out of, uh, you know, an anime or something like that. It sounds very interesting. Um, and my, my co-host, um, uh, I don't know if you've heard the episode, but he said something quite funny where the moment I mentioned the flying eye hospital, he said, oh, I remember seeing that on Blue Peter 25 years ago. I heard that, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought he was joking, um, but he was being very, very serious. Um, 
so it's it's clearly something that's engaged cross generational um, uh, audiences. You know, my my co-host is double my age. He's he's forty five years old, uh, where, where where I'm only twenty five. So it's 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 very very interesting how that's worked. But I think that there's perhaps a lack of understanding when it comes to the Flying Eye Hospital. And maybe that just may be a confusion of semantics, where people take it very literally that it's an ho- it's a hospital that flies. Um, is is that the case? What what is the Flying Eye Hospital? Maybe you could take me through that. Of course, yeah. Um, so as you say, the, the Flying Eye Hospital is fantastic because it's a teaching tool, but also an envoy and an advocate for Orbis as well. Um, and Orbis are now onto their third generation um, of Flying Eye Hospital. So their current plane uh, is an MD-10 model. And really um, what it is, is it's a plane that's been fully converted such that when you go on board, it's like being in uh, a hospital, a hospital setting. So um, when you walk up the steps to the plane, um, if you turn left, um, you're walking into our lecture theatre. Um, so it, we've got a 46-seater lecture theatre at the front of the plane. Um, so we've got aircraft seats there. Uh, there's a, um, a big screen at the front of the plane there. And we can have um, trainees sitting in the front of the plane that can be watching surgery that's taking place in the plane, in the theatre. And they could be watching it live on the screen and they can interact with the surgeon. They can ask questions um, to the surgeon as the surgery is taking place. So it's a fantastic learning tool. Wow. Um, As we walk further through the plane, um, from the top of the steps, if you're turning right into the main body of the plane, there's like um, a sort of AV center there, which is a sort of the communication hub of the plane. Um, Further on, we have a laser room, uh, so we can do laser treatments in that room uh, and also provide training, obviously, for people on the laser treatments. Uh, And then just over the wings of the plane, really, for sort of optimal stability um, is our operating theatre. And if you walk into the operating theatre, it's really just like walking into any operating theatre that you might see in a UK or US hospital. It's completely kitted out. It's got all the top of the range equipment. So we're taking the training opportunities um, to the people, uh, the nurses, the doctors um, in these lower middle income countries so they can get to train with equipment and technology that they might not normally um, be able to use. And then um, further on into the plane, for example, we have um, a sterilization room. Um, So we can train nurses on sterilization of equipment. um, And this is all meeting sort of international hygiene and airflow regulations. And it means the plane is uh, self-sufficient when it's on a program as well. We can sterilize all our our own kit. Um, Then at the back of the plane, we've got a recovery area. Uh, So the patients waking up from their surgeries, this is where they're recovering um, and preparing for going home or back to their local hospital. And then underneath all of this, in the belly of the plane, there's an area for uh, biomedical technicians. Um, So another important aspect of the programs is uh, training the local biomedical engineers uh, so that they can help to uh, maintain and fix all any broken equipment, for example. So um, they do some training there as well. Yeah. 
fantastic. I mean, it sounds... Uh, I mean, it sounds kind of equal measures extraordinary and very bizarre. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you, you guys are really taking the, the, the idea of, of absolutely maximising the use of, of, of a plane um, uh, to, to the next level. Um, you know, you've got, you've got electric. It's amazing. I mean, you've got a lecture studio, you've got an operating theatre. Are there actual operations that can be conducted in that operation studio? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's running like a normal operating theatre during our projects. Um, you know, we're carrying out several surgeries a day and it's hands on training there. Yeah. And I wonder, uh, Michelle, what was, what was it like for you the first time you set foot on the Flying Eye Hospital? Uh, what was your experience and what was kind of going through your head? Oh, it, you know, it was unbelievable, really, <laughs> much, much like you are now, you know, I really thought, wow, you know, this is fantastic. Such a, uh, a coming together of aviation and medical technology and such a fantastic idea. You know, this was thought of uh, over 40 years ago and this idea of taking the training opportunities to people, um, pe you know, opportunities that they wouldn't necessarily have. So. I think it's it's really great. And what were, what were some of the first things that you were able to do on the uh, on, on 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 the plane? Um, uh, what, what, were you conducting um, operations? Were you being educated? I mean, some of the some of the uh, maybe this is a gross generalization, but some of the stories that I've heard is that you know they 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 um, uh, they they uh, people board the plane whether it be ophthalmologists whether it be anesthetists whether it be you know uh, doctors whatever it might be um they board the plane at one destination and by time they land they're able to conduct surgeries um and i i don't know if that's a gross generalization but is that is that what it's like um, so my experience of the plane is, is really the plane has already landed in country um, when I arrive. Um, so we um, sort of schedule people uh, on, a, on a Monday normally at the start of our project. We schedule uh, the patients at the local hospital and they're either going to have a surgery in the plane or the local hospital. Um, normally, um, the patients and the trainees um, come from the local area that we're working in um, and they go to the hospital, uh, the Flying Eye Hospital on the day. Uh, so mm. they don't normally fly in the plane um, itself. We normally arrive, the plane is set up um, and then um, they're coming from their local area on the day to join the plane. I see. I see. And so, so I'm guessing that when you guys landed in Zambia, for example, um, do I'm just trying to kind of visualize it on exactly how it works. So do people then do the locals start boarding the plane and you operate them in the in the in the operating theater? Or do you guys then have it have a setup in the local hospital or whatever it might be? Um, how, how, how does that kind of work? Yeah, so I mean, I could take you through a sort of um, typical week, uh, thinking back to my last project, which was in Vietnam in, in 2019. Um, oh, wow. So a sort of a typical week will start on the Monday. Um, we go to our local partner hospital uh, with the teams that are working there. And um, we go as a group, so nursing staff, anaesthetists and the surgeons. And um, the local team have a group of patients that they think may be suitable for surgery. Uh, those patients are reviewed um, together with our volunteer faculty surgeons. 
And if it's decided that um, they'd be suitable for an operation, they need an operation, then they come to see uh, myself or one of my colleagues as anaesthetists. Um, we see um, if they have any um, health conditions that affect their fitness for surgery, uh, whether they need any of these conditions optimized before their surgery can go ahead. Um, if we feel they're fit to have their surgery, then they'd move on to be seen by our nursing team who help them prepare for their surgery later in the week. And then from there, really, a decision is made um, whether their surgery would take place um, in the local hospital or on board the Flying Eye Hospital. So we have two teams working throughout the week. So normally Tuesday through to Friday, um, we have a team working in the local hospital and a team working on the Flying Eye Hospital. Um, so patients will be allocated to have their surgery in one location or the other. Um, and if they're going to the plane, then they'd arrive um, on that morning, um, come on board the Flying Eye Hospital, prepare for their surgery, um, you know, have their surgery on board, and then uh, off they go afterwards uh, with everything done. Amazing. And what what were some of the more memorable moments that you uh, that, that you remember in, in Vietnam? Um, were there were, were there were there any individuals that you were very hands on with, and uh, maybe you could tell a story or two? Yeah, uh, so there's some obviously fantastic stories from from various different projects, but Vietnam is quite special to me um, because that was where I did my first project with Orbis. Um, and on my first project, I met a, a young trainee that was really just starting out in anesthetics. And we did a lot of work that week and I kept in touch with her afterwards, actually. Um, and then... I was fortunate enough to go back to Vietnam on another project with Orbis um, a couple of years later, and she was able to join us again. And it was amazing just to see the progress that she'd made over a couple of years. And it really reinforces the value of these long-term partnerships that we have with Orbis because she was developing into a really competent doctor, uh, really good clinical skills and communication had improved. and um, you can just see the value of what we're doing and mm. it's she's going to go on she's going to provide great care for her patients but she can go on and cascade the training that she's learned uh, to the next generation coming behind her um so you know it's those sort of things that really i see the value of orbis it kind of remind i mean what what you guys are doing it really does remind me of that old phrase you know it's 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 better, uh, you know, uh, to give a man a fish, he can feed his family for a, for, for a day, teach a man to fish and he can feed his family for a lifetime. Um, and it seems as though that, you know, instead of, you know, one, one of the more common um, programs that I see to try and help, um, you know, those who are disadvantaged in terms of sight, uh, particularly in lower income countries and developing countries and whatnot, um, is you know, donating frames and stuff like that, which I believe Orbis also does. Um, but what I've what I've truly found fascinating is 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 trying to, you know, that that's good, you know, but it's more of a band aid solution. Um, is is providing frames to those who, who 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 need it, and that that's obviously important, particularly for children. Um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you can't learn if you can't see, uh, or at least you can't learn very efficiently. Um, it's it's amazing when you kind of think about what life would be if you're blind, uh, particularly if you're uh, in a very, very low income area 
uh, you know, uh, where your work is very, very physical. Uh, I think most of these, um, particularly uh, in areas like Vietnam and um, and in Africa as well, and uh, uh, Zambia, where, where where a lot of the a lot of the work is very, very physical. Uh, and what life would be like, whether or not you can actually provide for your family. Uh, and I think that's a very harrowing uh, thought uh, in itself, and really provides a lot of perspective. Uh, on how valuable your eyesight can be, uh, whereas we take it for granted over here. I, 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 I remember when, 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 when on my journey with regards to understanding eye care, um, I, I really did find the procedures. Um, you know, we we say things like glaucoma and um, uh, cataracts uh, with with quite uh, a lot of generalization i mean i don't think a lot of people really know what cataracts is or what glaucoma is or you know what intraocular pressure is or whatever it might be and you know why would people know that uh, to be completely honest i i know i didn't uh, but i found it very very fascinating when um i realized that the the procedure for cataracts in the west uh, is you know, for for our standards, is quite inexpensive. I think in America, it's about two thousand um, uh, dollars to cover a cost of a cataract surgery. Um, and I know we spoke about this before, um, and you did say to me that you're not a cataracts expert or anything like that. But um, um, it's 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 an interesting point of discussion. I think is I I think that the surgery for cataracts uh, is in it, it involves a a laser incision that uh, is is done on the eye and then uh, some kind of ultrasound uh, procedure is then uh, done to kind of pulverize the 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 cataracts and get get it out and then replace it with a with 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 a lens with a new lens. Um, I I think that's how that's done and that entire procedure is around two thousand dollars to cost in America. Uh, and then I started reading about these, uh, what they call M6 procedures, uh, which are essentially manual cataracts procedures. Um, is this is this something that, um, uh, to your knowledge, uh, do 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 Orbis uh, teach the the, the local uh, hospitals on how to do is 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 these manual uh, cataracts procedures? Uh, yeah, so I mean, as I said, I, I'm an anaesthetist, so it's definitely not my area of expertise. But uh, the training that Orbis provide is um, really tailored to the facilities and the equipment sure. of um, the country that that we're working with. Um, and there are lots of different methods of, of cataract surgery. And some of the um, hospitals that we're working with will be using the same method that we're using, um, you know, traditionally in the UK. And some will be using, um, you know, different methods, as you say, a manual technique. Um, but we do try to tailor the training um, to whatever is whatever equipment is available in the country and what methods they're already using. Of course, of course. I, I guess that makes sense. And. You know, it just I, I love ingenuity, you know, and I and, and I love, um, you know, just, you know, looking at um, uh, creating a process or a product uh, that serves a, a a purpose for that particular environment. Um, and I think that's why I, I, I found so much interest in this particular cataracts um, procedure, because uh, whereas uh, in the West, 
we're more accustomed to dealing with early cataracts and tackling it then where it's very, very soft and very malleable and, and quite difficult to extract. Uh, I believe in some of these areas, like like areas you've worked in in Zambia and Vietnam, uh, you, you have more advanced forms of cataracts in these areas uh, where the cataracts is now set uh, hard, almost like rock. Um, so the doctors in the area, um, and I'm sure with help uh, from places like Orbis, uh, decided to, you know, hey, listen, we don't have the money for a £500,000 or $500,000 laser, um, you know, incision device. Uh, we, we don't have that, those kind of resources in this country. So we have to make do with a 50 cent scalpel and a syringe. Uh, and it's extraordinary how they, they, they are able to extract the cataract and replace it with a plastic lens, um, uh, which they manufacture uh, on site. I, it, it's stories like this that, that make me realize that, you know what, people don't need to be going blind. Um, and, and figures like 1.1 billion people and 90% of <laughs> it's not 51% or 30%. 90%, which is an overwhelming majority, um, could be living a significantly higher quality of life. Um, and I think what's also important to, to realise is, is uh, along with all of this kind of um, specific jargon, I guess you could call it, um, at the end of the day, when someone suffers from their, from their, uh, uh, from their eyesight, there are people around them that also suffer. Um, and I think that's also important to, for, for, for people to understand is um, there was a story that I was reading about. I think it may have been an Orbis story where uh, I, I can't tell you the specifics, uh, at least I can't recall it, but it was something along the lines of there was this individual who uh, needed this cataracts treatment and unfortunately their child wasn't able to go to school because it was the child's duty to look after the, the parent. Uh, and it was after this individual was provided with this cataract surgery and, you know, uh, was able to see afterwards that they were able to then go to school and was relieved of that burden uh, and start to educate themselves and, um, you know, bring the literacy rates up. So it, it just has such an extraordinary knock-on effect um, to, to everything, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't agree more, really. The the economic impact of visual loss um, on the country uh, can be really substantial. And as you say, um, the opportunities for education um, and to, to contribute uh, to the workforce as well. So um, dealing with these people's visual problems um, it is, it is really important. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And you know, when, when, when people are thinking that, hey, you know what, this sounds really quite interesting. It's obviously a really big problem in the world. Uh, how do I get involved if I wanted to kind of be a volunteer or get involved in this kind of uh, program? Uh, what, what, would be the, uh, what, what would be the route to, to something like that? Um, so people can find out more about Orbis um, by having a look on our website, uh, so that's www.orbis.org. Um, and they can uh, also find out about volunteering there. Um, and it's possible to contact our uh, communications manager, Anna, at Orbis as well. I'm sure we can provide the details for that. 
Um, and you can also find out a little bit about donating on the website as well. Fantastic. And is there is there is there an advisable amount of contribution that an individual should have? Because, you know, there's there's or, or is it just very much, you know, every every little helps? I mean, so, sorry, Tesco. No, of course, <laughs> every little does help. Um, but it, I suppose to give people an idea, perhaps, of um, what their contributions might do. Mm. Um, so, for example, £20 um, could buy uh, four pairs of glasses uh, to help people um, with uh, refractive loss causing their um, visual problems. Um, or a £100 uh, donation could pay for a cataract surgery for five adults. No way. Is that yeah, right? That's right, yeah. My goodness. I mean, that's significantly less than the $2,000 per cataract surgery that I mentioned in the US. Yeah. My goodness. Wow. Yeah, that, 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 that's amazing. I didn't actually know that. <laughs> wow. Okay. And uh, Michelle, if there, if, 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 if there was a message... Um, that's culminated with all your years of um, uh, experience and what you're currently doing and your, your current job and your, your volunteer work that you realise that is, is probably very, very important that you would like to get out there with regards to avoidable blindness and um, with regards to just general education. What, what would that message be um, that you'd like to kind of, you know, really hammer through to people? Um, I, I think, you know, I think the importance of um, training in sustainability, really, um, in in these lower middle income countries, um, I think that that's going to be the real key to improving things. Um, we need to have uh, trained eye care teams locally that can provide good quality care. Um, and also, I think um, to raise awareness really about the problems um, of eye care and to encourage people uh, to seek treatment early. And often by seeking treatment early, these visual problems um, can be can be managed and um, permanent visual loss can be avoided. Um, so I think those are really the key, the key things. And, you know, of, of course, you, you have all this experience. Where, where do you see um, uh this going i mean as i you know it, it was a bit of a depressing thing to kind of start off on which was you know i read that report in 2017 it was 250 odd million and now it's 1.1 billion i mean where, where do you see this going in the future i mean of course orbis have their aims and their goals but as an individual as as dr michelle um where, where do you see this going and is it where you would like to see it going I think, you know, we have been making some progress. Um, I really do. And I, I think that, um, you know, the pandemic has obviously had a, an impact on that process. Um, but we're moving forward, you know, um, we're doing a lot more virtual training now. Um, and I think looking to the future, a sort of blended learning is going to become more and more important. So I think um, we've got we can expand our reach by doing virtual training, but the hands-on projects are still going to be really important. Um, and I think this is something that we can um, we can improve. Um, we are working on, and obviously, you know, it's going to be a problem for years to come. But um, it, it's something that is really um, 
I feel really passionate about and I think it's a, a really valuable thing to be working on. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, th- I think probably, you know, a great starting point, which is something that you guys are doing a fabulous job uh, on tackling is just the education aspect is is trying to even out um, that that ophthalmologist to patient ratio. Uh, I mean, just going on the situation that you mentioned on Zambia, my mental maths is not great, but it sounds as though that we're talking uh, a ratio of one person to around 750,000 patients. Uh, just off the top of my head. Yeah, so um, that that was of anaesthetists to to patients. Um, so that, you know, that's something that um, has been improving even since I was there in um, uh, 2017. But mm. yeah, it's obviously it's going to take a long time to tackle these issues. Yeah. And I, and, and I think that, you know, um, I've 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 been a huge fan of what you guys are doing. Um, I, I I think I think you're doing it the right way. Um, as as I mentioned before, I, I I think all charity work is great charity work. Uh, you obviously have your exceptions, but um, uh, you know, let's talk about ninety nine percent of of uh, of of non profit work. I think I think it's all fabulous stuff, and and all this is is absolutely for me uh, at the top of that list. Um. Avoidable blindness is a um, blindness in general is a huge problem, and it's 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 more um, it's more urgent for me when you hear that ninety percent of all those cases can be avoided, uh, even at fairly advanced stages, uh, particularly for cataracts, uh, and in some cases uh, for those particular um, operation methods that I mentioned, like the M six or the manual cataracts uh, uh, surgery. Uh, it's probably easier to conduct those surgeries at an advanced level, um, which is uh, which which was very very fascinating for me. Um, but I love what you guys are doing, and uh, I I have to say it's been it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to be able to talk to you during this uh, d- during this time and learn more about what's happening and um, uh, uh, what Orbis are doing and yourself as an individual and hearing some of your stories. Uh, so I have to thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fantastic. Thank you.